0: This week on the Digital Dust Podcast.
1: His tags would kind of be like represent Indigenous people invading on cars, work, and space. So it's kind of like a clever spin on how colonial settlers invaded Indigenous spaces. Welcome back everybody to the Digital Desk Podcast. I am Robin
0: and I'm Liz
1: and that's it today.
0: That's (laughs) it, it's just us. (laughs) Yeah
1: it's just us today Um, but we're gonna be taking on a really fun topic. We're talking about art history which has been requested so it is time and indigenous history so it's gonna be a really fun mix of the two and we're gonna be uh, leaning into the conversation of appropriation versus appreciation.
0: Which is a huge issue right now in a lot of things.
1: (laughs) Exactly, and like that's what I wanted to like just start with where it's like what do you think of when I when I say appreciation versus appropriation like why do we even talk about it?
0: I feel like when we talked about it in like university they always showed us that one image there was like this one new york fashion show where like all of the models were wearing like headdresses and like very offensive (laughs) indigenous dress and regalia that they weren't like obviously they weren't indigenous the designer wasn't indigenous so that's what i always think of they're like this is appropriation or like the classic like oh my gosh kim kardashian's wearing cornrows like that's appropriation right um and it, it is hard it's a hard line to walk right of like you know, I want to buy from indigenous artists and support them by like getting beaded earrings and stuff, but then how do I also make sure that I do that from a place of like supporting and appreciating and not like wearing it as if it's like my culture. So,
1: yeah, I agree, especially like I find it more challenging when it comes to creation, like those people that are saying like, "Oh, I'm just recreating this cuz I think it's beautiful and I should be allowed to do that." And it's like, "Well, do you know why it's important?" Do you understand anything behind the image? Like, are you even allowed to share that? That actually happens a lot with Indigenous artwork, like you were saying, with the headdresses. That's not something that's meant to be recreated without meaning.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like, even though you appreciate it and you like it, did you even ask the artist or or yeah, because it's not your culture. So it's not your say as to like what context it gets used in that kind of thing. Like just because someone shares like a traditional story with you doesn't mean that now you can share it with everyone else because it's, you know, those a lot of those teachings are sacred. So it's tricky. Yeah. Or, you know, give the Pope a headdress. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's stressful. And today we're going to be exploring the work done by Emily Carr because she is walking on that line. And honestly, we don't even know Where she falls on it just yet, but we're gonna explore a bit of it today to see how we feel and if her work should be considered as appropriation or appreciation. So yeah, to get us started, like, what do you know about Emily Carr?
0: We definitely talked a lot about her in like primary school. I remember whenever we had like an art unit, we would do a lot of we did a lot of Emily Carr, and it was always like, oh, it was so great. And um, similar to. When we were talking about Elvis in the first episode of this season, it was that similar thing with how he kind of appropriated black music and like that kind of cultural influence. But Some people are like, well, they were taking something and like using their white privilege to like make it more out there and to like get it out there. So people actually started to see it in the mainstream and they that kind of thing. Um, So I felt like that with Emily Carr because she painted a lot of um, West Coast indigenous stuff. I know she did a lot of like totem poles and things. Um, and so I could see how people could be like, well, she was helping like put, you know, or even like some of these totem poles, a lot of the practices with the totem pole is you make it and then you leave it in the forest or wherever it's supposed to be. And it decays like you don't fix it or anything. So it is really cool to have a painting of that exact moment in history, what that totem pole looked like, but was she just on people's land, just like painting without their permission? Like, I don't know.
1: Right, there's so many questions cuz like that's the main critique with her work where it's like she's painting the ind- indigenous artifacts or villages and they're empty. You're like, "So, how did you get there? Why are you painting this?"
0: And like not the actual artists who made the totem pole are getting any credit. It's just her for painting the totem pole. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, exactly. And one of the images um I'm sure we'll share it as well on socials, but the first one I have there, it's literally called Vanquished. It's like, "Okay, that's pretty dark yeah and like I don't I don't think so like we're talking 1930s still like this is not indigenous people exist like this yeah. doesn't make sense
0: yeah by painting this like abstract nature and then just like a decaying totem pole and then like no actual like thriving indigenous culture what are you saying <laughs> you know
1: yeah exactly so that's 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 pretty much like how people see her nowadays. And I think that's how she's presented to the public as this like Canadian icon showing us the the West Coast and how it really is or how it's transformed. And she's just become this symbol for what even the government thinks that Canada looks like.
0: Yeah, it's so true.
1: So if we wanna look back at her history, it's actually kinda interesting like how she how she grew up like she's the um the second youngest to nine children she was born in um 1871 but she only became truly like a recognized artist when she was 57
0: wow i didn't know that that
1: whole (laughs) yeah for most of her career she wasn't really recognized until she started painting nature landscapes and was starting to put herself in indigenous communities
0: was she born in bc because i think she lived in bc
1: yeah, I'm assuming her parents were immigrants because they said like she it was two English parents, so they might have moved here. Uh, okay. Yeah. She was also known for being just very different, you know, like maybe it's just the fact that she's like one of the youngest of nine kids, but she was known for being kind of rude and not like lady-like she would rather be out in the woods than be with anyone from society like they she they thought of her as a strong-headed and unladylike because she smoked she swore she played cards and she didn't want to attend church
0: she was like a sailor that's great
1: yeah she was pretty different for like the average uh, woman at that time and even um there's a story that she became a teacher for some time at a uh, an art school in Vancouver but it only lasted a month because she was so rude to the students she was smoking and swearing at them so the girls started boycotting her class
0: (laughs) that's hilarious could you imagine that now oh my gosh
1: (laughs) oh my god it would never happen yeah or maybe it would like she'd be seen as so eccentric that you're like I have to see what she's doing
0: yeah totally
1: (laughs) but she um she finally found her calling in her group when she was painting these landscapes and it was during the 1930s that she got recognized by the the famous group of 7 and she became best friends with Lauren Harris. They loved her. They named her the mother of modern arts because of what she was doing and they even gave her an honorary membership to that that art group.
0: Wow, group of 7 plus 1.
1: Yeah, exactly. Group of 7 plus 1. They're like we're still men only though, so you can't be a full-on <laughs> member yet. <laughs>
0: Wow, that's really cool.
1: Yeah, and like she was also very humble. There's um, an, a letter that I found that she wrote to her editor where she wrote, this is what she wrote. She's like, all day yesterday, I was minded to ask you to modify your praise in the article. I pondered and went through the first part again. It didn't seem honest for me to accept that, all that. Lauren, who's Lauren Harris, came in the evening and I put my trouble before him. I just told him I was not clever or as capable as you gave the world to believe or believe yourself. And he said to her, That is not your business. Ira's writing that, not you. (laughs) We artists cannot judge our work for ourselves. We have to leave the reaction to those who react on it.
0: Oh, very cool. That's a neat little insight.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to think too that like she took this mindset where she's like, you know what? I'm just doing me. I'm painting what I want. I'm creating what I want. And people will take it as it is and they'll do what they want with it. But then I think that's where it kind of comes into these issues that we're talking about with, like, appropriation, where she's just creating these things and not thinking about, maybe there's something wrong here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Maybe if it wasn't Indigenous artifacts, it'd be slightly different, but...
1: Oh, right? Like, if it was just a flower in a field, and she's like, you can judge it how how you want to.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I'm assuming that all of the critics and stuff are also white, so... Exactly.
1: And that's what I was just getting to is, well, even though she left it up to interpretation, critics were just like, wow, these large, empty landscapes, they're kind of, I don't know, they have this bad connotation to them because they almost imply that there's no one living here. That there's like an erasure of indigenous culture and people on the land of what she's like painting. And some even interpreted her pieces as like sensationalizing the fact that these communities were either dying out or the fact that, like, you know, how the government loves to be like, yeah, First Nation this, this is what makes Canada. So it almost as if, like, you're putting up that stereotype of the the, uh, the indigenous person being Canada. She's promoting it in, like, tourism, in a tourism sense. Because, like, at the same time, while she was creating these paintings and getting recognition for it, the government was repressing indigenous people and taking them off the lands.
0: Yeah, 1930s was horrible for residential schools. Oh my gosh. Exactly.
1: It was so terrible. And then all while they're doing that, the government's taking her paintings and being like, this is Canada. This is how Canada looks. Empty. No, no people here that are not white. That doesn't exist. Wow. Yeah. And then like also the fact that she was associated with the group of seven didn't help because many people see their, their paintings as problematic as well. Because they kind of give this idea that Canada, which is, the the idea of their group was like painting Canada in a way that it looks different from the States and Europe, like we're unique from them. But they also, the fact that their landscapes were all empty kind of implied that this was a space that was ready to be colonized. Like, come over. We're not like the others. Come, come make a home.
0: Totally. Like, yeah, there's no, there's no existing people here.
1: Exactly. And so, like, she gets the brunt of that critique, I think, because she's especially using indigenous villages and artifacts in her paintings and being like, no one's here. It's over. <laughs> and I, I think, like, this impression of her still remains today, because I found that the plaque commemorating her in BC, this is what it says about her. It says, her compelling canvases of British Columbia landscape offer unique vision of the forest and shore, while her documentation of Indian villages provides a valuable anthropological record.
0: What? We should really update that.
1: <laughs> they really should. I know, like, that should be a school project out there in BC.
0: <laughs> Even just saying Indian is like, come on, guys. <laughs>
1: it's terrible. And, like, who is she? Like, I love, her. I love the work that she created. I should have started with that. But who is an artist to tell you... Anything about anthropology or like how a community is working and thriving.
0: That's so true. It's just, it's just art. Like art informs a lot of things, but it should not be informing a whole science about like how we understand history and people.
1: <laughs> exactly. So it's so strange. But this is like we were saying. Like when she's saying, "I'm creating this work and letting the world interpret it for themselves." This is what happens. Like this is kind of the legacy she's left behind, and. She- well she's dead now so she doesn't realize it but this is what's happened and also in this vein there's something to be said about appropriation like we were saying when artists or especially individuals in business start using special or sacred images for their own gain you're kind of wondering like what the heck's going on here especially like we said that there's artifacts and relics that are it's just inappropriate to share like it's not your business to do that so we're wondering how did Carr get into these communities why is she painting totem poles? And like, what right does she have to share this?
0: Yeah, exactly. Those totem poles are supposed to remain, like they were put in the middle of the forest for a reason. Like they weren't supposed to be seen and recorded like that.
1: Mm -hmm. And I know that's a big issue in like uh, museums today, because some of them, some across Canada, and even in Europe, they have like, Real totem poles, and what happened was like an explorer came over and was like, "Oh look at this! They just left it in the ground and took it, and then preserved it." When the whole point is that it decays and goes back to the ground. Yeah. What you like completely interrupted this whole life cycle and this tradition just because you wanted to preserve it for your own gain. Like it's it's pretty mind-boggling.
0: It really is, and like doing that through art is still a way of doing that.
1: Exactly. I I would agree with that honestly. So while we speak about this, I do have to mention, like, the other side of the coin, because, you know, we're historians, and just the fact that we need to consider a historical perspective, and the fact that these were n- never her intentions. So this author of the, um, the article titled The Trouble with Emily, his name is Robert Fulford, he wrote, yeah, he wrote that like, Emily would have never considered this to be appropriation. He wrote here, the idea that her eloquent tributes to native BC carvings would one day be resented and even perhaps labeled as appropriation could not have occurred to her any more than it have occurred to Picasso, Gauguin, or the Romans. Like, I get it, and I think it's interesting, but it's still, like, we do call out Picasso. We're like, you can't just be stealing African masks and not saying anything.
0: And especially, too, like, Regardless, she was still in these Indigenous communities making this art. And I don't know if she ever encountered Indigenous people while she was out there doing this. I would imagine that she did. What were those relationships like? Like, it's one thing to just be like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. But she was directly, like, in contact with Indigenous people. Like, there must have been some, I don't know. I can't, I don't believe that it's just purely, you know, oops, I didn't mean to. When yeah, there was a, still a lot of thought there. And and yeah, and I don't know. It's just, yeah. It's I different.
1: know, like, I do believe her intentions were pure. But I think her careless attitude about just being like, well, people can do what they want with it. It's just, that's rough. It, like, she should have kept up with it, especially since we're gonna see further, like, she did have a relationship. And she did care about indigenous people. So it's like, mm, you could have kept that up a little more.
0: Yeah, you could have actually at least advertised that. And just to be like, hey, I'm just painting this. But just to be like, do whatever you want with it. I'm not going to say anything.
1: Yeah, know. it's out of my hands now. <laughs> so this is where some of it gets pretty interesting in the fact that Indigenous people are now responding to her work. So an Indigenous artist named Sunny Asu, who is First Nation from that area and like has um, ancestors from the places that she's pan- painting, Decided, you know what? I'm gonna respond to her work because yeah. this is this is kind of bullshit. Like her empty landscapes are giving a false impression for everyone. Like the the absence or erasure of indigenous people is almost depicting them as a vanishing race. That's how he saw it. I mentioned like um, it was important to him because even one of her own paintings, he wrote in his website here. Her painting Kate Mudge, an Indian family with a totem pole, is actually a depiction of his own village, one where his great grandfather was the chief. So he wrote, The personal connection I have to the source material for this work has made this intervention particularly satisfying.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, like I can imagine. He's just sitting there, he's like, Yeah, it's time to speak up. Like this is my family in that painting. I'm doing something about this.
0: Exactly. And to be like my aunt like, you know, my ancestors were around then, but I'm still here now. And you tried to deny that. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So he started his series called Interventions on the Imaginary. And what he would do is he would take an Emily Carr painting and use it as a background. And then he would start tagging the painting. So it'd be like a spray paint over top of it. And he'd put ovoids, S shapes, and U shapes all rooted in iconography from his own indigenous style, like personal to his community. And yeah, it was just amazing and it's all meant to interrupt the view the colonial gaze just make you stop and be like oh what's what's that
0: that's really cool they're so
1: amazing i will share some pictures as well on socials he wrote about his work he's like i'm saying indigenous people are still here our struggles are still real this land is still ours and we're going to do what we need to do to make that known and fight for it yeah right so he's very fun like what he like even though this is a very serious topic he took a light-hearted approach so many of his paintings was done with like humor so what he would do is that his tags would kind of be like his voice or even like represent indigenous people invading on cars work and space so it's kind of like a clever spin on how colonial like european settlers invaded indigenous spaces yeah. Wow. So, like, some of his, like, amazing pieces here, like, the titles are hilarious. The first one is called Space Invaders, right on the nose. That's awesome. And it's called almost like an alien invasion. That's how he presents it. Like, the next one he wrote, the title is Choke on the Novoid. <laughs> Another one, which is pretty great, is um, What a Great Spot for a Walmart.
0: Oh, that's so good.
1: <laughs> I know, right? my absolute favorite was, it was, like, a super long time ago that people were here, right?
0: (laughs) Wow, I love that so much. (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Like, it's so clever and, like, so right to the point and perfect with what he was going for. He's just saying, like, hello, I'm not gone. We are here. Like, you can't just do this. You can't just think of us as absent or not, or not, or not worthy of of being here,
0: it's so true, and I I feel like it's almost as if he, like he's doing to Emily what Emily kind of did to to you know indigenous people in the it, in a way where like I could imagine her looking at that and being like it's just a bunch of like dead space and just like you know shapes that don't mean anything yeah. <laughs> and that kind of thing where like actually it does mean actually something very much to me and just to be like yeah I just think that's really cool that's and that's a really great way to reclaim no, it. No, I love and, it. While still being like jovial and you know not being so like negative about it, if that makes sense, because this is a dead woman and like there's only so much that you can change about it, so just to just to make something new out of it is a really cool way to do that. That's awesome.
1: I agree. I think it's so constructive. Like instead of just like he he could have easily done like an art demonstration where he just rips them apart or something, but no, I I love what he's done. So. From here, though, when he was going to do his next series of interventions, he actually started reading more about the artist, and then he started realizing she wasn't who he thought she was. So, he started reading her letters and journals, and then soon discovered that she was actually welcomed and embraced by local Indigenous communities, and that she just simply wanted to paint what she was being shown, because they would tour her around the villages. And um, even, like, the people, the First Nation people from Vancouver Island gave her an Indigenous name. They named her Klee Wick, which uh, is a moniker for the laughing one.
0: Very cool. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, like, and it completely, once he realized this, he's like, oh, okay, so this is not what she was going for. It's more just, like, people are not interpreting her work correctly, or there's just, you know, there's something missing here. So he decided to give it another go. And he, again, took Emily Carr's paintings as a background and started tagging them again. But this time when he would tag them, he would, instead of... Oh, yeah, I didn't mention this. On the first time around when he was tagging them, he was covering over oh, her name. Oh,
0: interesting. But this
1: time around, he was circling it to be like, this is a collaboration between the two of us.
0: Aww.
1: Yeah. And it was just, it was kind of nice because it brought together their their messages into one so like Carr's paintings in a way would document colonial issues like loss of space and culture while he would also add the fact that colonial uh, not colonial but indigenous perspectives and narratives are still present and they're still valuable and you should still listen to them
0: I feel like that's that's something that kind of in in my opinion kind of drives a lot of um, appropriation like in terms of white people appropriating other people's cultures is that as white people specifically like north americans we feel very removed from from any culture because we don't really have a culture a uh, hundred years ago if you said you were italian or greek or irish like that was considered a race but now it's all just whiteness right. but i also see why we're always so drawn to you know like Dream catchers or the cornrows or like tattoos or something that kind of gives us more of a cultural identity. Um, I see why that's like something that we kind of seek out, and so I think that's a really interesting way to do that. Um, and I and I get I kind of get where Emily's coming from, and that she was welcomed into the community, but I think she was also painting those from a place of like, yeah, like I want Canadians to know that this is part. You know, Canada now wants you to believe that indigenous culture is canadian culture but yeah so i just think that's interesting it's like i i can see where where they're both coming from Mm -hmm. there but yeah
1: no exactly and like i feel like truly her her intentions were to just share what she was seeing because she's like this is incredible i love this stuff people should see it too and then it just kind of took a dark turn when other people got their hands on it or when it was starting to be exposed in museums um what, what was very interesting is um a professor from the University of Guelph, her name is Greta Moray, she wrote a, um, a thesis on Emily's work, and she pretty much said that anyone who is just looking at her work as appropriating Indigenous art for the use of white people is just, is missing the point. The previous author that I mentioned, Robert Fulford from The Trouble with Emily, he summarized what her thesis was, but he wrote that Carr is not an artist seizing on Indian art for purely formalist reasons. All to the contrary, her art was a public formalist act, owing as much to her civic conscience as to her artistic sensibility. She specifically opposed white authorities, whether missionaries or government employees, who were urging natives to change their way of life. And she saw the totem pole as part of an integrated and complex native culture. When writing about her travels within within indigenous villages, she took great pains to acknowledge that these places belonged to her guides and that they, not she, understood them.
0: Okay, cool. That's
1: really neat. Yeah, and like the, the Moray, like her research was totally different than some of the uh, critics before because she was actually consulting written records and newspapers about the artist. She even looked at oral histories, and then even just consulted the paintings and sketches themselves. Like instead of just taking the art for what it was, she's like, you know what? I'm gonna get to know Emily and see what was going on here. How did yeah. this all happen? Wow. Yeah, it's a little different. And like she also mentioned and. She had an interview with a, an indigenous artist named George Klutze, and he, he mentioned her, he says, about Emily. She made it so very simple for me to see how important it was to remain myself and to not change my style. It was largely because of her counseling that I kept the style and began, uh, that I oh, began oh So with.
0: he actually talked with her directly? Yeah. Wow.
1: So this is like an artist that was like influenced by Carr, and Carr was pretty much like, you need to keep doing what you're doing because it's amazing don't ever try to change
0: oh that's so
1: nice yeah so it's so interesting that like well also it probably helps that she was a recluse and didn't really have many friends so people didn't know this about her they just took her artwork for what it was and then just ran in a totally different direction
0: you know I, I mean an artist is an artist and again like what you mentioned earlier like she doesn't have to explain herself but if she if she could have been more like hey by the way like this is kind of what I'm I'm doing. I'm not just, like, drawing things because I want to draw them. It's, like, I'm actually in these communities. That would have been that helpful, but... Yeah. It's it's still, it's interesting, for sure.
1: Yeah, and, like, I think that that's where I was going for, for the wrap-up, where it's just, like, her... While her intentions were good, they were interpreted in a different way, and that's why it's important to have Sunny su's work, actually, in this conversation, because he's just bringing it all back together he's telling everyone that you know what her like her work may perpetuate this myth that indigenous people are disappearing but it's just not true um in fact it's um like the the combination of their work shows that there's a love and beauty for the our natural land and what uh, indigenous people created and the fact that it's also commenting on colonialism and what happened to these indigenous communities like these empty landscapes. In some cases, they are correct, looking at it back at it now with what the government's done to these communities. It's a really big issue what we've done with colonization. So it's actually super important that we don't, I think personally, that we don't look at Emily's art without Sunny
0: It's Totally. I think so. I agree. Like, again, it's It's just as shocking to look at a paint a painting of an indigenous village that doesn't have children that doesn't have people because what does that say right so I guess yeah I think it's the immediate assumption is to just villainize and be like she didn't represent them but she's really pointing to a bigger narrative of like no it's 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 because of a much darker history that was going on like I I wasn't erasing people just people weren't there is the problem and if, I wonder if anyone's done this, it'd be really interesting to go back to the sites and like, did any of them become a Walmart? Like, it, it, I think like the conservation side of it is really cool to so be able to look like to look back and be like, how many of these traditional lands like have been erased? Is there a pipeline through there now? Like, I think that'd be really interesting just to see because I, I can definitely see from an environmental side as well why that's super important to kind of document like these were once natural spaces with indigenous history and then as soon as you do put a walmart on or something like you erase that history so to have that like record to be like no it was here is is really powerful
1: oh my god i think that would be so cool like i could see hopefully sunny asu maybe doing something like that like revisiting the sites and just making connections again like just a third layer oh i would love that
0: yeah and and almost like updating them I know, I'm like, I'm surprised no one, maybe someone has does it, has done it. I feel like it's something that someone should have done already. But if not, and if anyone's listening.
1: We'll have to look it up. Please do it. (laughs) Do it. Do it. (laughs) So in terms of appreciation versus appropriation for Emily Carr's work, where do you fall on that?
0: Oh,
1: I know. (laughs) I
0: feel like, honestly, it's almost like, it doesn't fall in that binary for me. I feel like it's something else entirely. Right. And I guess that's one of the things with art as opposed to, I know I, I guess every single thing you could like make an excuse that it's art. But I guess that's one of the things with art is that it, it has so many different meanings beyond just like one or two ways of seeing things. So it's so hard to like put a label on it. <sighs> Cause like, I don't know again, like I think for the time, if you're thinking historically, like she did a really good job. She could have voiced it better. So I don't know. I, I,
1: I know I feel the same way.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's just that it's not, it's not either. It's not either. It it just kind of is what it is. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I agree. I think it is what it is. And like, I think what makes it either appropriation or appreciation, it, it all depends on how people are using it or even just presenting it. Like what does the label say? Like, how are you acknowledging her work and what it's about?
0: That's so true. Because that's one of the things with art, especially, is all you get is tiny little, little... Just a hundred words. Just or nothing. we're just putting it on a t-shirt or something, and you're like, do you understand, you know? Exactly, yeah. So, again, to put it on a t-shirt and then be like, does it still look like that now? We don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It'd be like, stopping someone and be like, why do you have that on a shirt? Like, what do you think about that piece? <laughs> what does it mean to you?
0: It's like when people wear band shirts and they're like, "Do you even listen to that band?" And you're like, "No, I. It just looks cool. I don't know."
1: That literally happened to me last weekend. I was like, "I couldn't name a song, but I like the shirt a lot." (laughs) So maybe that's something we can put out to our audiences then, because we we right now fall into this category of I don't know. It depends. But maybe you guys have an opinion. We'd love to hear it. This um actually brings us to the end of our our episode. So please uh. Please send us some comments yeah. or some DMs or anything. Just let us know wh- what do you, how do you feel about this whole story. Where do you fall on the appreciation versus appropriation scale for Emily Carr?
0: Yeah, let us know, especially Canadian kids who grew up learning about her in school. What did you learn? How how has that perception changed since yeah. you listened to this? Because for me, I'm like 180. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I never would have saw it that way. So
1: that's good that's good (laughs) okay well perfect thank you so much everyone for joining us and for listening it's been a it was a quick episode i think but still like hopefully you got a lot out of it
0: yeah this was such an awesome conversation i'm so happy we got to do this because we both love the indigenous history and stuff so
1: yeah. yeah it's just it's just amazing and there's so much there
0: totally okay well, okay. Katie's not here. It feels weird, but yeah, we'll see you on the flippity flop. <laughs> on the flippity flop. Yeah. <laughs> Digital dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek. Haudenosaunee, Lanapawak, and Attawandaran peoples on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingan, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Mattias Miller.